Middle East on the brink, North Korea on the brink, Iran increasing its aggression, elections in Taiwan. Look, there's a lot of global instability as we ourselves plunge into primary season. How have you sheltered your savings and investments from potential major setbacks to the economy? You think it can happen here? It can happen here, but it's not too late to diversify an old IRA or 401k into gold. And Birch Gold Group can help you with that. Birch Gold is the only gold company I trust. As opposed to many other investments, Gold thrives in times of uncertainty. It is an important part of diversifying your savings. Now listen, here's how Birch Gold can help make it a part of yours. Birch Gold will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold. And it doesn't cost you a penny out of pocket. You want to learn more? Just text SAVAGE to 989898 for a free info kit. S-A-V-A-G-E, text it to 989898 and you get a free info kit. It costs you nothing. Just text SAVAGE to 989898. With an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, countless five-star reviews, and thousands of happy customers, I encourage you to arm yourself with the knowledge of diversification through precious metals. Protect yourself. Text SAVAGE to 989898 and claim your free info kit. Protect your savings with gold. Do it now. Text SAVAGE to 989-898. Thank you very much. Birch Gold is the only gold company I trust. Text SAVAGE to 989-898. Warning, the Savage Nation contains adult language, adult content, psychological nudity. Listener discretion is advised. And now, the world's most exciting podcast, The Savage Nation, home of borders, language, culture, and here he is, New York Times best-selling author and National Radio Hall of Fame inductee, Michael Savage. Welcome to the free version of the Michael Savage podcast, and I'm going to keep it free for all of you. But there are many of you who would love to be able to listen to my show without any ads. I love ads, but many of you want to listen to the podcast free of ads. So we created something for you, a solution. We call it the Savage Premium. For less than the price of one flat, tasteless beer at your local bar, you can receive access to all of my podcasts going back years ad-free for just $3.99. That's at $3.99 a month. You'll get not only my ad-free podcast, but you will also occasionally receive access to material that is exclusive for members only, and I'm going to give you the list in a minute of what you've, what you've missed. You're going to get an occasional monologue from me, maybe a reading from one of my novels, sneak peeks of interviews before anyone else hears them, archive pieces dating back to 1994. Many things that come up, you're going to get exclusive access to Michael Savage material. Details can be seen on my website, michaelsavage.com, and if you want to join all you got to do is go to glow.fm and search Savage Premium. That's glow.fm and search Savage Premium. Now, you will always have access to my free weekly podcast. I want to be clear about that. That's my promise to you. But if you want less ads and more Savage, join the Savage Premium Club today and never miss a spoken word of mine. It's glow.fm slash Savage Premium. You can find it on michaelsavage.com. And here's some of the stuff that you have missed so far. Michael Savage reading from his best-selling novel, Countdown to Mecca. My words, my voice. Savage reads from one of his lost journals, Fiji, 1968. Savage's first drive-time show, Hour One. My interview with the Jewish gangster, very popular. I uh, read from my first written published article, Who Was at the Helm? 
from 1965. It's heard nowhere but on my premium site. I read passages from my novel, Abuse of Power. Uh, we replayed Fat Al's Tuna. My Savage Show from 324.94, the earliest show in the archive, 324.94. My interview with Donald Trump from 110.2011. 110.2011, while Mark Levin was mocking him and Sean Hannity was mocking him uh, and the others were mocking him, I was interviewing Trump. Much more. And remember, subscribers also get ad-free podcasts every week. The cost is less than a beer at a bar, and you get a better buzz with, with the Savage Premium. So go to, go to glow.fm slash Savage Premium for full access to ad-free podcasts and exclusive sound you'll not hear anywhere else. Thank you very much. All right, welcome to the Michael Savage Podcast. Good to have you today. In today's podcast, we're talking about how this so-called woke culture, which I don't even like the word, has become the most destructive force ever against this society. And our next guest paid the price. Jennifer Say was on track to become the first woman CEO of the great Levi Strauss and company. But everything changed when this woman, this brave woman, publicly opposed the closure of San Francisco's public schools at the height of the pandemic. In response to her wrong think, management gave her a choice. Shut your mouth or leave. Well, she decided that defending at-risk children was more important than the job that she loved so much. And she resigned Levi Strauss. She had a great job. She'd been there for many years. She joins us now to discuss this and her new book, Levi's Unbuttoned. Listen to it and weep. Hi there. Excited to meet you. Hi, nice Thanks to meet for being you. on the podcast. Sure, thanks for having me. So you've been to Helen back. <laughs> uh, a little bit. <laughs> well, it's an interesting story, and I'll begin at the beginning. We're speaking with Jennifer Say, whose book, Levi's, is it Levi's? It's Levi's on button. We're not talking about the rye bread. We're talking about the apparel company. This book has set off a shockwave in America because Miss Say was on track to become the first woman CEO of Levi, Levi Strauss and Company. And uh, she was widely celebrated as a great leader who helped save the iconic brand from bankruptcy. I've lived in the Bay Area for so many years. I grew up with that company here. Formerly self-described left or left of center progressive, she was beloved as the embodiment of the company's profits through principles ethos. But everything changed when Miss Say publicly opposed the closure of San Francisco's public schools at the height of the pandemic. Because of her wrong think, Levi's management gave her a choice, shut your mouth or leave. She decided that defending at-risk children was more important than the job that she loved, and so she resigned. Very few people would do that. After 20 years at the company, she gave up her professional future to retain her values and her voice. Very few people would do this. In the book, Levi's Unbuttoned, Miss Say recounts her remarkable journey from U.S. National Gymnastics Champion, amazing, through her rise up the corporate ladder, ladder at Levi's. And she is the highest profile executive to fall victim to the cancel culture that is sweeping across this great nation. Her story is important for all of you listening, because in these difficult times, maybe you will be able to stand up to those trying to silence you. Miss Say, welcome to the Michael Savage podcast. Thank you for having me, Dr. Savage. I grew up. I didn't grow up here. I mean, I've been here since 1974, and I used to walk through Levi's Plaza on the way to my apartment for many years. 
And I watched the company change in the nature of the employees, in the nature of the benefits they were given. I saw more employees sitting outside having lunch and doing yoga than I did see them through the windows working inside. I don't know how they ever made a living. So what year did you join them? I joined the company in 1999. Oh, wow. That's a long time ago. Yeah. And when when you first joined, Levi's was in financial straits? Yeah, it was um, sort of the beginning of the lengthy decline. And I should mention, I even worked closely with Levi's before I joined because I worked at their advertising agency, which is how I ended up at Levi's. So um, from about 1994 to 1996 or seven, I worked at Foot Cone and Belding, which was the advertising agency. I took yeah. a little break, went to the Gap, and then joined Levi's in 1999. Um, and you, you began in advertising then? I did, yes. Is that's your background in college? or No, not really. I kind of went into all of it quite reluctantly. I, I really, and I recount this in the book, I really... Never wanted to do any of it. I didn't really want to work in business. Um, I wanted to pursue more creative endeavors. I wanted to write books and make movies, but I didn't have a ton of confidence in my creative abilities. And I didn't like um, financial insecurity. It made me very anxious. So I took a job at an advertising agency uh, in 1994 to pay the bills. And I swore to myself I wouldn't be doing it in five years. Mm. I, I hoped beyond hope that I would not be. Um, and then I did it for about another 30. Only another 30 years. Only another 30. But you know what I found is that I enjoyed it. Um, I really liked the agency. It was young people, creative. I was pretty good at it. That's always fun to be kind of good at something. I liked the team atmosphere. And then uh-huh. when I got to work at Levi's, you know, it was a brand I had worn since I was a small child. Yeah, it was a brand do. that I loved. Um, And it was, you know, it was sort of atypical in terms of a corporate culture. You know, you really were kind of allowed to be yourself. And I really loved that. Um, That's good to be yourself. But when it becomes the group against the self. Well, yeah, then it turned on me. (laughs) I was I was no longer allowed to be myself um, in the end. In your book, Levi's Unbutton, you write the following companies purporting to care about, quote, progressive values are really doing nothing more than striking a superficial pose meant to signal virtue while distracting from any company's true motive, which is financial gain for shareholders. We understand what that means. I mean, I understand that they're more concerned with feeling good and doing good and virtue signaling than making a profit. So where does this go, in your opinion? Can this be stopped? Well, I think the point I was trying to make is it really is business is the same as it ever was. What they really care about is making a profit. So all this virtual virtue signaling is to distract from that fact. Um, it's to sort of say to employees as well as as consumers, hey, look over here. Look, we're doing all this good stuff while they take all, you know, the, the senior executives, the CEOs, you know, scoop up all the money for themselves. Uh-huh. Um, so it's really just a big distraction. And what I would propose is something that, frankly, is a bit more honest, which is to say, we are in it to make money. We want to deliver the best product that we can and market that in a way that touts the product benefits. Um, we will treat employees fairly. You know, we will pay them a fair wage. But, but Jennifer, I have to go to your book about woke capitalism and what it's done to you in Levi's Unbuttoned, because you were you were attacked simply for saying 
you oppose the closure of San Francisco's public schools at the height of the pandemic. It turns out you were correct. All the schools that closed were unnecessarily closed, number one. Science has proven closing the schools did not at all inhibit the spread of the epidemic. It was mass hysteria. And you, of course, as a clear thinking corporate executive, not an academic, could see through the fog and state what you saw to be true. And you were more concerned for the children's future than you were about feeling good. Uh, Who was it who first attacked you? Um, I guess it it you know, I don't know who came first. I'll be honest. So I started speaking out in March on social media that Uh. built over time. And I I had written some op eds and I had then begun to lead rallies in San Francisco. I appeared on local I appeared on local news. So it was more than social media. Um, I was so you became an activist. You became an, an activist on this issue. I became an advocate for children on this issue. Yes. Um, I wasn't spoken to until September of 2020 by one of my peers. And the point that she made to me was, when you speak, you speak on behalf of the company. And I said, no, I don't. I mm. speak as a citizen. Uh, and then it just became sort of a year uh, of peers and my boss urging me to stop. Uh, um And then, of course, the social media mob also came after me, and that just made it worse. But employees really started to complain in the spring of 21. um, And it was determined that, you know, because I took this stance that went uh, against the orthodoxy of the Democratic Party, frankly, (laughs) that made me this sort of right-wing racist lunatic. Well, there you go. You were a Trumpette. (laughs) You were a Trumpette. Apparently. Even though you you probably didn't vote for him, you became a Trumpette. Uh, Yeah, well, that's the whole point. It doesn't matter what you did. All that matters is Jacques Hughes as during the French Revolution. Once they accuse you, you're you're convicted. That's correct. You're convicted in the court of their public opinion, and there is no coming back from such accusations. Living have I, as I have in San Francisco for so long, believe me, I well understand that position. I moved here in 19, God, I hate to say, 1974. And the thing I loved about San Francisco, I lived in New York, grew up in New York, lived in Hawaii for six years, came here. I found it to be a beautiful, open, gorgeous city. All my friends were left-wing poets. I didn't really believe everything they said. You know, we argued this and that, but it was an open argument. Didn't agree with everything. I was not a conservative. Uh, and it was only when I saw how dictatorial they were with regard to opinions that I lost them as friends back during the AIDS epidemic. All I wow. said was, I, and we're talking about that they called me every name under the sun, meaning I said you should close the bathhouses. Feinstein's wrong. It's a locus of infection. I'm an epidemiologist by training. They put posters up calling me a Nazi for that. And of course, even Randy Schultz, a gay activist, later wrote the book and the band played on where he said had Feinstein closed the bathhouses, she could have slowed the epidemic spread years later. That didn't help that situation. But I saw what groupthink does and how yeah. easy it is to pigeonhole someone and destroy them. First, ostracize them and then destroy them. Of course, they did me a favor because I wasn't going into radio as a result of the social isolation years later. And, and of course, here we are. But nevertheless, it hurt a lot. Sure. Humans don't like to be rejected from the pack. Well, we don't like to. No, of course not. And we don't like to be called terrible names that are untrue. Um, It's it's wrong. You know, Um, it's an effective strategy, though, because it keeps a lot of other people quiet. 
Um, and I think, you know, the irony in my story is, and if you live there, you know this, um, I, I quit on February 14th. So I quit rather than accept a severance package and, and sign an you NDA. Took no severance package? Well, I was offered severance, but I would have had to sign an NDA, which meant I couldn't be here talking to you. Wait a minute. I, I know what the severance package must have been a very high number. It had it was to over. Be. It was over a million dollars. And you threw that away to retain your right to speak out freely. I did. Oh, you're a better person than I am. Because well, I don't I, I don't know that a person that everyone could do that. Honestly, well, certainly. Well, certainly. It was a difficult choice. I'll admit that. But I just felt as this happened, everything you're describing, you know, yes, I cared about standing up for the children, but I became increasingly alarmed about this suppression of any debate and dissent whatsoever. And I felt like if I signed this NDA, you know, this whole time for two years at the company being told to be quiet, I said, no, I'm a person. I'm a citizen. I get to say what I think. Mm. If I accepted hush money essentially ah. i would be violating my own principles and i i just felt like i would feel like too big of a hypocrite wow. um, and look i was a corporate executive i had some money saved i could i could do it i, I can't do it for the rest of my life i got to figure out what's next but i just i wanted to be able to speak about the necessity of having these conversations because you know as well as i do that if this conversation was permissible over the course of the 18 months of schools being closed, we could have perhaps reached a very different answer. And the day after I resigned, three school board members in San Francisco were recalled because guess what? Lots of people actually agreed with me, mm -hmm. but they were too afraid because to your point, if you see what's happening to someone and they're being called terrible names and losing their job and all of these things, and you can't afford to lose your job, who's going to do it? Who's going to stand up and say, open the schools? If you're going to be shunted off to the side and called terrible names like racists that make you unemployable, you're not going to do it. Why would you? It's stupid, <laughs> in a sense. <laughs> Michael Savage, a host like no other. We're speaking with Jennifer Say with her great book, Levi's Unbuttoned. But, you know, you I, I see that in your background, you were a um, U.S. national gymnastics champion before you were in the corporate world. So that means you were very competitive and very as as an athlete, you were super competitive and you know how to, and you're a fighter. In other words, can I ask you how you became a gymnastics champion? What preceded that? Do you care to tell us who your parents were and bring them into this? Did they make you into this fighter? I mean, I have to give them some credit. Certainly, you know, they definitely instilled a sense of, um, I guess, right and wrong in me. I think the thing about gymnastics, and it's worth mentioning, you know, now that you brought it up, is it's a it's a very cruel and abusive sport. And I spoke cruel? out. To Did you say cruel and abusive? Yes. You become it's the greyhounds of the athletic world. It's a it's a, it's awful what they do to young children. Oh, my and God. I, um I spoke out about this in 2008. I wrote my first book called Chalked Up, and I ah. exposed the abuses in the sport, and that did not go well either. Let me be clear. Ah. Nobody wanted to hear it then. I was called all sorts of horrible names. My gymnastics career was maligned, and I was called a grifter, and I don't oh know, out to God. make a buck. 
And 10 years later, when the story of Larry Nasser, who was the, US, the, the, the doctor for Team USA Gymnastics, he was exposed as a, the most prolific pedophile in American oh. sports. Then everybody realized I'd been telling the truth about the abuse of culture. Oh, boy. Um, but it's worth noting that in this culture of cruelty, obedience, I mean, the athletes, you are silent. You do not object. And so I... You know, my childhood, in a sense, did not encourage this sort of outspokenness. You know, it took a lot. Jennifer, how old were you when you began your gymnastics ascent? I was about six. Six? Yeah. So you started. Well, I a, started at six. In, yeah. in grade school? Yeah, I was probably in first grade. It was probably 1975, 1976, something like that. It was right after Title IX. What made you get into it? You know, Nadia Comaneci was the, you know, Olympic champion in 1976. Oh. She was 14 years old. She looked like a little girl. Like we all, America girl, American girls fell in love with her. There were, it was only a couple of years after Title IX. Like there just weren't that many sports opportunities for girls then. Oh. There weren't soccer teams everywhere. But gymnastics kind of exploded because of Nadia. And that's what I wanted to do because of Nadia. Now, look, you don't have to answer this question, but I'm a conversationalist. So one That's fine. one idea leads me to another. And if you don't feel like answering it, because I'm thinking now all of a sudden, how do you feel about men calling themselves transsexuals who are competing with women? Wow, you're just veering all over the place. You know, I'm forming. <laughs> I'm sorry. I told you my mind is discursive in that manner. You know, I've stayed a bit out of this conversation. I think um, if I were an athlete today competing in a sport where biological men had a clear advantage, I would not be happy about it. Okay, let's leave it. it. I don't want to put you on the spot. It's just that I'm curious. Here you were, a young child competing, starting to compete, and you found out you had a skill for it, obviously, or you wouldn't have gone to step two. That's right. You you tried it and said, hey, I'm good at this. Yeah, and it was fun. You're strong, you're strong, you're brave, and you're springy. So to speak, right? <laughs> Pretty springy. springy. I was more graceful than springy, but were, yes. Were you a ballet enough. dancer at all before that? I did both, yes. But oh. at a certain point, I chose because um, gymnastics is a very young person sport in a oh. sense. And so I was on my first national team by the time I was 10. And at that point, I quit dance to oh my train God. gymnastics. All okay, the time. so you're, you're, you're an agile person super aggressive very brave and you wind up in the corporate world you do it your way did you did you help turn levi's around financially while you were there yeah i i absolutely did i mean i was like i said you know i joined in 99 which was two years into a decline that would last about another 10 or 11. oh my god Um, and then you know i would say my sort of signature role at Levi's and I obviously had many roles there after, you know, almost 23 years, but I was the chief marketing officer for eight years. And I held that role when we went public, um, when we had an IPO and I really was credited with turning the brand around and bringing it back to relevance and health and growing the women's business to a bill over a billion dollars. It had always been a business that had not been that big for us. Mm. Um, and I loved it. I mean, I did. I loved it. I loved managing a team. I loved mm. creating the content and the storytelling. Um, but so you're alone. You're alone now as a lonely author, media media personality. Trust me, I know what it's like it's to hard. work. It's hard. It's terrible. You're, I'm staring at you through a screen on on Zoom. 
I basically work alone. There was a time I worked in a radio station in downtown San Francisco at KGO, which I loved because it was, I mean, politically, everyone was on the other side except for a few people. We were part of the KSFO so-called conservative team. But I got along with everybody. Even the people yeah. who hated me came to like me because I'm a nice person at the end of the day. Yeah. It was, at that time, I'm talking 98. Actually, I started radio in 94. I loved being on Front Street and walking through Levi's Plaza, going in the building. And there, there was a camaraderie. I knew I, the, I knew the elevator operator. I, I knew the front desk guy. I got to know people. They were part of like my life. They were my village. So that, that was me. That building became your village, right? Oh, it was. I mean, I got married there. I had four children there. I got divorced there. I got married again there. I mean, <laughs> not there, not at Levi's, but you know what I mean? Yeah. These, these people, they were my friends. You know, I hosted baby showers. I went to weddings. I uh. went to fun funerals, sadly. Um, 23 years. That's I, I've never, that's the longest I've ever done anything in my life. And I loved the community. Um, I loved being there. I loved what I thought the culture was all about. And when it came down to it, when I started to be outspoken on this, not one person came to your aid. Nobody. Not, nobody. But everybody's afraid of what would happen. What happened to you would happen to them. And not, not they probably wanted to. They weren't as brave as you. No, you don't think so. But. Uh, I don't know. You know, I think people just look. Here's what here's one thing I will or, say. Wait, is, did they think you were wrong because they were calling it the pandemic of the unvaccinated? That was the big lie at that time. Remember? Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people thought I was wrong. And I think they were sending, you know, emails to my boss and the head of HR. I think a lot of people might have quietly thought I was right, but was not a fight worth having. OK. And here's the other thing, because I stayed very much in the lane of kids and school openings and playgrounds. Like I really avoided other subjects, um, especially subjects that pertain directly to Levi's. Like Levi's had a vaccine mandate. I didn't talk about that on purpose, even though I had views on it. I never talked about it. Uh. Um, but I here's one thing I think is an important point is all of my peers, pretty much all of my peers, and even people on my team, you know, that worked for me, most of them sent their kids to private school and private schools reopened in the fall of 2020. So they had nothing to fight. Uh, they had nothing to fight. Their kids were going to school. And that's what really mm -hmm. set me on fire because I was like, okay, so you, you think it's safe to send your kids to school. You're sending your kids to school. You realize your child is happier and doing better because they're in school. And you don't want the 50,000 other children in San Francisco to have that. You think that's wrong. And that just seemed to me the most socially unjust, hypocritical stance that you could take. And that's when I got really a little more animated, I would say, in my advocacy. The Savage Nation. It's Savage On Demand. You know, Jennifer, I'm listening to you, and I think you'd make a great politician, except for one problem. You're too honest. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> I knew you, you, know, you saw that coming. You're a tennis I, player, but okay. I, I saw it coming. A few people have asked that, asked if I would consider it, and it's that it's for that reason that I don't want to, because I feel like now I get to say what I want, like you do. And why would I give that up now? Well, that's the price. Okay, We pay a price of social isolation. We pay the price of being 
marginalized by society when many people admire what we're doing. But we do have something they the largest number of people don't have, which is that great drink of freedom. There's nothing like it in the world to know that you are free to say what you actually see to be going on. You can be right or you can be wrong. You can discuss it. But I grew up in an age where I was encouraged by liberal professors to express what I believed to be true. I was raised by liberal teachers in New York. All my professors were liberals. I didn't know what they were. I didn't know liberal or conservative at the time. But they told me question authority. That was a big ethos later on in the 70s. Remember that question authority? Yeah. Well, my now, dad had you, it hanging on his wall. Well, yeah. now, now if it's, you question authority, you're an enemy of the state. That's what's happened. It's terrible. But Jennifer, let's get back to your book, because we want you to sell tons of books to my audience. <laughs> well, <that's laughs> because Levi's. I uh, no, no, I I, of course. <laughs> I mean, we could converse, but you're here. Jennifer say S.E.Y. Levi's on button coming out November 15th. That's right around the corner. I've seen you on TV. I saw you on Newsmax TV last week. You're getting great press. What's going on since you published this book? You mean with my life? Yeah, I don't mean personally. I mean, <laughs> I mean, not, not your personal life, but I mean, your I don't know, your life, your life. Yeah, well, I spent, so I, I resigned very publicly in February of this year. I spent most of the summer writing the book. Um, I'm also making a documentary film about the impact to kids and families from prolonged school closures. Um, the book is getting great press, as you mentioned. Um, that's what I'm doing now. And, you know, I had some time to adjust to this working home alone thing, because for my final two years at Levi's, because of COVID, we were all working at home on okay. Zoom anyway. Yes. I still don't like it. I miss being in an office with people. I liked walking around and, you know, seeing, of course, the seeing, community, you're in a village. Yeah. That's your village. Well, and I think, to you know, to your point, when you're in person, I think we have a much higher tolerance for dissent and disagreement. We're all much more diplomatic. We don't oh. we're willing to listen. Like, I think the fact that we were all separated made us meaner. Oh. I tried very hard to stay diplomatic in all of my advocacy. And I think I succeeded at this point. I've looked back at all my old tweets. But, you know, when you don't have to sit across the table from someone, you can become very cruel. When oh, you, when well, you social can, media is a the meanest place on earth. But even, you know, outside of social media, in our work environment, which became Zoom, we weren't together in a room. And so people would say with anonymity, terrible things in our company wide meetings about me. Oh, my God. Um, and I just this whole like not being together, I think is really bad for us. Like we don't have productive conversations and dissent. And you're right. Social media contributes to that. Absolutely. Um, but anyway, all of that aside, I'm basically focused on writing, having written this book and now, you know, talking about it with folks like you and making this film. And I'll figure out what I'm going to do next when I get to the end of this year. Well, it won't be politics, but it should be. It'd be fun to see you in the political arena <laughs> in your book, which we're going to mention till they buy it called Levi's Unbutton. <laughs> you make the great point that the woke cancel culture that started on campus has, has not just migrated into the culture at large but has come to drive policy in almost every corporate boardroom. Mm -hmm. We know why we know that the corporate boardroom is basically a cowardly place that caters to the loudest voices, no matter how marginal. And they don't care about looking like what they look like as long as they can keep going on and they don't get personally assaulted. 
they're not touched by it. You quote Thomas Sowell, a great author. He said, those who are contributing nothing to society except their constant criticisms can feel both intellectually and morally superior. How is it that you and I and everyone else have permitted these marginal, basically zeros, they used to be called non-entities many decades ago, they're non-entities. How have we allowed the non-entities to dictate to all of our society what is acceptable? How has this happened? You know, if I had the answer to that, okay. it's a great question. I don't know, and I won't let it stand. And I, the book, in a sense, was my sort of exhortation to others not to let it stand. I don't care if you agree with me or you don't agree with me. Do not be silenced. Participate in the debate that is happening. I, I have friends from all walks of life and all stripes and all political leanings and backgrounds and religions, and we can have civil conversations about things we, you know, we disagree on and. I always come away with more empathy for the position, even if my mind isn't changed. But if we can't have these conversations, then we can't ever get to the right answers or the truth. And I really feel so strongly, you know, this school debate or non-debate, because any doctor, any public health, health official, any epidemiologist that took a stand to say this is the wrong thing to do, they were shunted off to the side as quacks. Oh, I and, know. McDougal and, McDougal and company, great doctors. You've heard of them? Jay Bhattacharya and Martin Kuldorf and Sunetra Gupta and all the great Barrington folks. You know, these are esteemed scientists and physicians, and they were <laughs> deemed quacks. But you know what? There was a manufactured consensus created. There was manufactured never consensus. consensus. Good line. It was there was never an agreement. There was never consensus. And just imagine if we were permitted to have the debate. Because enough people spoke up that they couldn't just shove us into the corner and call us all crazy. I think schools would have opened sooner. I think a lot of things would have gone down different. I'm very focused on schools. Obviously, there's a lot of aspects to this. Um, yes, but right. if, 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 you know, California schools were closed the longest, 50th in the, in the entire United States, the harms done to children were, were great. We I tried could, to appeal to Governor Newsom through emails, through, through middle. Me too. I mean, you know, I had a way of reaching him. And I said, Mr. Newsom, you know, look His at Florida. His kids were in school. Yeah, I said, look at Florida. I did a podcast in 2020 on Florida compared to California on many levels. I have family lives in Florida. They said, it's a different universe. I have a house in Florida. The restaurants were open. The schools were open. And the uh, infection rate was about the same or a little. It was actually a little lower. Well, let's well, say when you yeah. and when you normalize for age, the fatality rates are the same as California. I mean, the population is much older, so you have to kind of normalize when you adjust for age. The fatality rates in Florida and California are exactly the same. You know, this so, thing of social distancing, Jennifer, it's interesting. I have my doctorates in epidemiology from UC Berkeley. People don't know that I don't make an issue of it. So I come at this from the point of view of science not just emotion. I can do both and I can do them right. both well. But I looked at it and I said, let's look at this from the point of view of facts, only the facts. So let's, where does this come up social distancing of six feet? Why should there be five feet, six inches? Why should there be six feet, five inches? It was so dumb. Wait, but listen where it came from. It came from a high school student. I know. You remember? Yep. She yep. told her mother it should be six feet. You found that yourself, right? I found everything. I read everything. <laughs> <laughs> you really did your work. Were you still at, at the company when you were doing digging into this? 
I started reading everything as early as, you know, February 2020. And um, John Ioannidis from Stanford wrote a piece very early on in Stat News. He called it a fiasco in the making. Um, and he talked about the fact that the infection fatality rate was likely much lower than was being estimated. Oh, which he, oh, he, oh. Was, he was correct. And I just started reading all of the data from Italy. Remember, Italy happened yes, right before we all shut down. And I think the median age of death in Italy was in the 80s, which means children were not yes. getting sick and dying. Kids have and good was, immune systems. We shouldn't forget to say that. Yeah, but there are other viruses that affect kids um, more. In this particular instance, it, it didn't. And, uh, you know, he had a great line, which now I'm not going to remember, but it was, <laughs> it, it, we were... Before we had the data and the facts, we were like doing this catastrophic thing and we had no off-ramp for ourselves, which clearly is what happened because the school stayed closed for 18 months. Um, there was no nuance to any of these decisions. It was just everybody stay home. And it's interesting you bring up the bathhouses because that was considered, you couldn't say what you said. And yet it was okay to close schools when children, you know, children were, were, were positioned as these like filthy disease vectors. Children had the hush, hush, to- hush, hush. Now you're crossing over a line now, the, you know, not you remember only animal they- farm- Jennifer in animal farms, some animals are more equal than others. I, Come on. I'm aware. <laughs> um, but it was perfectly acceptable to close schools for close to 18 months, um, but not acceptable to close the bathhouses. So, now, now, it just seemed incomprehensible to me that we would do this to children who were at the least risk and also had the most to lose from this kind of isolation. Jennifer, they closed churches, but not bars. Remember that? Yes. One of the tweets I got in trouble for was I said in very early 21, I can't believe that people in SF can go to bars, but my son can't go to high school. That's right. And 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 I saw churches. <laughs> with signs outside that said, please free us, you know. Yeah, you couldn't worship, which I don't do, but I feel for people that do. Yes, I had it's a friend. A, very important I, to them. Yeah, I had a friend who passed away, not from COVID, in the summer of 2020. We couldn't have a funeral. This is for a woman relatively young, early 50s. We couldn't have a funeral for 20 people at the beach. The Savage Nation. It's savage, uncut, unfiltered, and raw. Jennifer, it says you moved your family out of San Francisco so your children could attend school. I'm not going to ask you where you live, but are you in the Bay Area? No, I I can tell you where I live. I've been very public about it. I live in Denver. We moved down. Yeah. You became a mountain person. Well, not really. Why did you choose Denver? It's a very politically leftist state. The schools were open. Oh, okay. Got it. Are you a skier? I mean, I am not a skier. And, you know, I will say the governor, there's a libertarian streak here. I'll just say that. Um, A lot of guns, a lot of abortions, (laughs) and a lot, like, it's like anyone can do whatever they want. There is this real sort of like libertarian streak. Yes. The governor is a Democrat, but I would argue he did the best on all of this of the Democrats. That may be a low bar, but the schools were open. And that was my that was my filter in choosing where to live. Well, I, I, I love Colorado in a way. I haven't been there in years. I have a family member who has a home in Aspen. But believe it or not, I can't even visit because it's a, it's a something like not 8000 feet and altitude sickness. And I don't get along very well. 
Yeah, it's tough. They got to get used to the altitude here. Your heart's um, working. I, when I moved, more. I was still working at Levi's. And so I assumed that, you know, I didn't want too big of a time change like Florida. And I thought I'd go back and forth, which I did as our offices started uh, to open. So I didn't want to be too, too far from California. Do your children like Colorado? Yeah, they love it. It's a lovely community. Um, very friendly people. Mm. Um, and everybody just sort of, there is a different openness. You're right. It is democratic, but like, I don't know. I met a lot of people with a lot of different views and sounds like California in the seventies. When I moved, maybe I didn't live there in the seventies, but people seem pretty accepting by and large. To me, it was paradise because it was an open city. I love North beach. That's what I moved here for was North beach, not California. Great. And I love the the food. I love the architecture. I like the cafes. I love the the conversations I could have. And so I was brought back into the world that I've always loved that hardly existed anymore. And now that has gone almost completely after the epidemic or pandemic or pandemic, whichever your orientation may be. Uh, people are afraid. And many places that I've known are gone. People have passed away. Their restaurants have closed. I hardly go over the bridge into the city. Uh, much, which is a sad thing because I love San Francisco. But getting back to your book again, we got to sell your book. Okay. I'm, sorry. No, no, I, I'm <laughs> not. Nice. Sorry. You're very I'll nice. do it. You see, people, I remember when I used to go on Larry King when I was an author, I did books, I would do book tours. And Larry King would say to me in the beginning when we were chatting, he said, don't mention your book. He said, let me mention the book for you. Okay. I said, OK, Larry, fine. But he would. <laughs> he'd hock. He'd hock the book. So I'm going to hock the book. It's called Levi's Unbuttoned by Jennifer Say, S-E-Y. Where is it on Amazon right now? Is it moving up? It it is. As you might guess, it goes up and down with press. So it got really high at the end of last week. I'm not sure where it sits today. Mm. Um, But it was number one across a range of categories, women in business, censorship, a bunch of things last week. Um, Breitbart, Breitbart would be good for you. Breitbart has a very big audience, and they're, they're nice people. I know a lot of them. That's nice of you to offer oh, um, nice. an intro. Um, I, but it's for, you know, still now on Amazon. You can also buy it at levisunbutton.com and on Barnes & Noble. Do you think you're going to have boycotts? The woke Boycotts? You think the woke the book? Well, you, they you won't the, buy it. I mean, well, that's fine. Jennifer, you, sh- you should know what's done in bookstores. I've written 28 books. My books, many were bet New York Times number one bestsellers. I'm not a child in this industry. The left would go in. Let's say the, the opposition would go in when my books came out. And even if it was an upfront sale that the publisher paid for, like upfront, they put my book under women's hygiene. Right. So now I'm good. They will it. move you. They could move your book under Donald Trump. You better be very careful. Uh, <laughs> they might. You know, I think. We're at a bit of an inflection point right now, which I'm sure you've observed, where no one's taking any accountability for schools, but um, there's sort of an admission that it was a mistake. And so I think that there is more openness to talking about these things in the in the mainstream than there, there was in the past, because we all know it was a major up, if I might say it that way, <laughs> even even though even though. No one's, you know, owning the mistake. Everybody's trying to distance themselves from the decision. Fauci um, said I had nothing uh, to do with it. Whitmer said, Governor Whitmer said, 
our schools were only closed three months. That's a lie. Of course. Charlie Crist, who's running as a Democrat in Florida, is accusing Ron DeSantis of having closed the schools, which oh. is the most ludicrous thing I can How imagine. How do they get away with this? I don't know. And Gavin just doesn't talk about it at all. And Governor Hochul in New York um, has said, wow, that was a really bad idea. So it's yeah. like, you know. Now it's a bad idea, right? Yeah. I mean, now they're, they're not moving. taking any accountability, but it's sort of kind of okay to talk about now. So I feel like, you know, that's good for me and the book. And I should say, it's not just about this. It is about coming up as a woman in business in the 90s. Well, that's the real the story. That's yeah. really the story. You know, without mentioning her name, my wife is a very successful businesswoman. I don't know if you know anything about our background. Did you read any of it? A little bit. Well, she's the big one. She's the one who makes oh. all the money. Okay, good. Uh, I'm just I a like media. That. I'm just a media personnel. <laughs> she doesn't pay. She's very political, but she doesn't want to talk about a lot of it. She said, "I can't wait to hear this podcast with Jennifer Say." I said, "Why?" She said, "I admire her so much," and she said, "I want to meet her." I said, "Okay, oh, fine." But you are a role model for younger women. I could see you becoming the Secretary of Education, for example, for a <laughs> have to be a Republican. You're putting well, me back in either politics. that or secretary of education <laughs> for the state of California. Good luck. Or even the secretary of education. But I don't think you'd be happy in a bureaucracy with with uh, 500,000 employees. Yeah, I mean, I, I like managing large teams. I right now am so happy, as you mentioned earlier, to be able to say what I please, to say what I think. I think for right now, I, I you know, this is a good spot for me to kind of make the work on the projects that I want. I'm not saying never. I mean, I'm 53. I got a long life ahead, hopefully. So, you know, life has many chapters and phases. Things could change. Uh, but for now, I'm happy working on my book and my movie. Home of Borders. Language. Culture. The Savage Nation. You know, Jennifer, I don't mind saying it because I've had my birthdays on air. I'm 80 years old. I began radio. When I was 53 years old, not having not having been in the media, I started on a local station in San Francisco when I was 53 was my fourth career. I had become so incensed by the political climate that I did fill in work at KGO one night. And then 26 years went by like that flash of an eye. Like over, I became in the top three talk show hosts, one bestseller after another. You say, well, what are you doing now? Well, after I left radio, I started a new career, which is called podcasting. It's now in the top 0.3% of podcasts. You're a natural media personality. You have a, a great articulate manner. You're impassioned. So you could go into the. I'm not telling you what to do, but I, I'm getting enthused by your presentation. <laughs> but we haven't even touched on what you just said a few minutes ago, which is what you just said a few minutes ago i'm I'm, you mean about it it's more it's about more than my last two years at least i just did a joe biden moment i'm sorry what was it you said a few minutes ago (laughs) oh oh, i i i said you were asking or was i worried about being boycotted and the the thing is the book is it's a memoir so it's about more than these you know last two years of strife at levi's it really is about Ah. my upbringing but also about being a woman in corporate America. So this for book could inspire girls, for example, young women. Well, I think so. And, and I think that's not such a 
maybe, you know, a third rail. Like that's something people are interested in that isn't so political. Look, it's not, it wasn't easy. I'm not complaining. It is what it was. And I ended up, you know, becoming quite successful, but sort of just, you know, gives a little bit of an insider's view into what it was like coming up as a woman in a very male dominated culture in the, in the nineties. And was Levi's the time you joined, Oh, was the whole board men? Well, Levi's began, people forget, (laughs) during the gold rush when the great when the grandfather or great grandfather was making basically dungarees for coal mine for miner for gold miners. Right. Yeah. The company started in 1853 as a dry goods store. Levi Strauss was a dry goods merchant from Bavaria, also known as Germany. And then in 1873, um, he created the blue jean with a tailor named Jacob Davis. And the the patent was signed for what became the blue jean in 1873. it was a very, it's different than a lot of fashion companies. A lot of fashion companies, it's, it's been, I would argue, more male dominated than a lot of fashion companies. Um, and then, you know, me coming up, it's not just that the board was all men, all the leaders in the company were men. The, the, you know, the women in leadership roles were few and far between. You could, you know, you had to look hard to find a mentor mm-hmm. if you wanted one. And even now, if you look at the leadership team, all the key decision-making roles are still men. So on the leadership team, these support function roles, the head of HR, the head of corporate communication, those are women. I was the one woman in a key decision-making role, and I am no longer there, as you know. (laughs) So it's still pretty male-dominated. Jennifer, I'm looking at your early life, and I see that you grew up, you graduated from Allentown Central Catholic High School. and, And it's interesting to me, because I grew up in New York, but we had relatives in eastern Pennsylvania. And some of my happiest memories are taking the train from Manhattan to um, Easton on Thanksgiving or other holidays once or twice a year to visit our relatives. It was some of the most beautiful days of my life. That part of the world at the time was beautiful. Uh, how was it like growing up? in? it's a small town in Pennsylvania that you grew up in then, right? Yeah, I mean, I grew up in... I was born in Philadelphia. My parents live in Philadelphia. They also just turned 80. So they're the same age as you. My dad had a pediatric practice in Philadelphia for over 60 years. I moved to Allentown when I was 13 because there was a national training center there for gymnastics. So I'm not really from Allentown. Ah. In fact, I haven't been back. Um, And then ultimately, my whole family moved there for a variety of reasons. But I, I and I ended up going to high school at Central Catholic, despite the fact that I'm Jewish. Because um, the public school complicated the public. High I was really going to ask you that because you look like you're yeah. Jewish. You sound like you're Jewish from New York or whatever. And I say, no, she's Catholic. OK, you had that wrong. I'm not Catholic. No, I'm not. Catholic. No, some the, of my best pu- friends are Catholic, Jennifer. <laughs> the public high school wouldn't. You know, I trained seven, eight, sometimes nine hours a day. We I needed to get out of school at like one o'clock. I didn't need to take gym. I didn't need to be in study hall, but the public high school wouldn't let us out early. The Catholic high school, which a parochial school in Allentown is not like a fancy Catholic high school. It's like the parishioners go there for a couple hundred bucks a year. At least that's how it was in 1983. Um, That's where I went because I could leave at one every day, get to the gym by one thirty, so I could train from like one thirty to seven thirty. I remember there was Easton, Allentown, Pittstown, Pittston. I remember the football, yeah. the high school football games in those towns at that time were so well attended. All the whole town came out. Oh, yeah. It was a big deal. Bethlehem, Easton, Bethlehem. Allentown. Oh, what names come yeah. back. God, I remember yeah. even a, a, um, 
a sandwich at a restaurant on top of a hill, which later was closed down for selling horse meat. Just memories. Oh, <laughs> I'm telling yeah. you, horrible <laughs> memories coming back. Uh, so yeah. many great memories. But again, we want to go back to your book and, and without being redundant. Some of this is in there, too, like being Jewish and going to a Catholic school. So, again, it is a real memoir from the beginning. So you actually talk about being Jewish and going to a Catholic school in your book. I do. Yes. Well, it's an interesting question about ethnicity in a certain way. I don't think that played any role in your being attacked. Do you? Oh, gosh. No, I don't. Okay. No, that was strictly democratic orthodoxy and the San Francisco Which is worse bubble. than religion, of course. Yeah. The religion in San Francisco, religion. Oh, the religion in San yeah. Francisco is a crucifixion. And yeah. it's a crucifixion of the, of the far left Democrat Party. No question yeah. about it. Again, we're going to go back at the end here of our great interview. Levi's unbuttoned. Would you say the book is more about woke capitalism, about the education of children, about freedom of speech, or all of those things? I think it's about woke capitalism and freedom of speech. Michael Savage, a host like no other. Any last words for my audience other than they better go out and buy the book right now? On Well, I would love it if you bought it. Um, it was a labor of love. Um, it's not just about COVID. You know, some people aren't that interested in reading about COVID all the time like I was. <laughs> um, yeah, I think there's sort of something in it for everyone. Honestly, if you like memoir, you know, which I do, I'm inspired by stories of overcoming adversity. You know, I hope this can be that for folks. Well, would a man find the book as interesting as a woman? And if so, why? I think so. Why? Why would it? Well, I think, well, first of all, why do you have to be a woman to care what happened? I mean, why do you have to be a woman to care that it's a memoir? It's about free speech and it's an exhortation that we all need to stand up and use our voices. And, you know, men have been equally as silenced or silenced as women have been. Uh, I, and, I, you know, so they need, well, not you, but you know, it's, it's, it's not particularly gendered. Everybody has been cowed into silence. And so I think everybody could use a little kick in the butt or a reminder or a, little inspiration maybe um but it's got sports it's got religion it's got politics it's got covid what's not to like jennifer say sey levi's unbuttoned what a pleasure it has been for me to meet you so uh distantly here on this <laughs> thank god for technology on the on the zoom screen i wish you the best of luck with this great book and you and or your family if and ever you come back to visit the san francisco area you will be sure to contact us we would love to um meet you i would love that i would love to meet your wife i come back quite frequently so okay. consider it a date ah you got it <laughs> jennifer thanks again good luck with your book thank you there, thanks for having there me great, Dr. there's a great 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 joy and freedom in the social isolation that they've given us by the way <laughs> yeah, it works well also if you really like your spouse and you like hanging out with them. <laughs> so for me, it's okay because I like hanging out with him. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. Good luck with your book. Levi's unzipped. Oh, unbuttoned. Sorry. I'm joking. Unbutton. I was joking. Yeah. All right, guys. Okay. Thank you. Bye now. Thank you. Levi's unzipped would probably sell better. You know, that's the name of their internal blog. I was avoiding it. Whose name? Levi's, our, the internal communications platform is called Unzipped there. God. 
So I didn't want that. All right. That's what happens when you play with words. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Bye. All righty. Thank you. Thanks Bye. Thanks for being on the show. Well, thank you very much for listening to today's podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it and learned something from it. We have about 400 other episodes available for you to listen to absolutely free. You can go back into our vast library of podcasts and listen to any one of them at any time. And remember this, if you want to listen to my podcast ad-free, sign up for the Savage Premium Membership and get access to ad-free podcasts as well as some premium content from our Savage Archives. How do you sign up for those ad-free podcasts? Please visit michaelsavage.com for a link. Again, thank you for your listenership. This is Michael Savage.